0: to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co.
1: This morning we'll be reading through Psalm 23. A Psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. forever let's pray by the thank you for your word we thank you for the assurance that we can find in your word we thank you for how you spoke in it through david lord i pray that we would also find our rest in you lord as matt comes this morning to proclaim your truth to proclaim your word lord i pray that you would speak in it through him but in that our hearts our thoughts our minds would be turned to you be focused upon you and upon what is being proclaimed, and not in our circumstances, not what's going on in our lives, but um, our hearts will be turned to worship. pray that you'd be honored in this morning, in Jesus' name, Amen.
0: Amen.
2: We're looking this morning at Psalms of Trust, Psalm 23, Psalm 46, and Psalm... 91. Of them, Psalm 23 is maybe the best well-known of all the psalms. Rare is the Christian funeral that doesn't have someone reading this precious psalm of hope and trust. Not because in those dark and desperate grieving moments we really need to hear a poem about sheep or someone pouring oil over the top of our head. But because in that moment, we need to know who to trust. We need to know what to trust when it feels like our world is shaken. Oh, Christian, have you ever felt like you were stuck right in the middle of your pain and struggle and couldn't get out? No one knows. and No one cares. No one's close enough to know, maybe because you haven't let them in. And yet your heart also uh, just keeps beating again and again. I can't fix it. I can't fix myself. And no one is coming to help me. Well, today we're going to look at these three psalms and be reminded that God knows. Be reminded that God cares for his people. That God defends and watches over his people. And that means you and I can trust him. Isaiah 26, verse 3 says, You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Let's look together at Psalm 23. Uh, I'll confess to you, as uh, one who loves uh, going through and dissecting God's word, uh, seeing all the connections within God's word, it, it kind of grieved my heart that. We're going to do something different this morning rather than just camping out our entire time in Psalm 23. Yet, just to give you a quick overview, he begins with an analogy in which you and I are sheep. And God is the shepherd. it's It's an image, it's a story that we might understand the dynamic of what is happening. In it, God gives us rest in green pastures. God leads us to still waters. He leads us to paths of righteousness. These are all places that God is taking us. And they're all uh, speaking of restoring and restful. As a result, the psalmist says, we lack nothing. I want for nothing. That doesn't mean that we don't want something in this life. But in the sense that we used to use that term, there is nothing in this world that I want. There's nothing in this world that I need that's necessary for my daily life that my good and gracious shepherd has not provided. You can trust him. And therefore, my soul is restored. I want us to just think about that that contrast of our world versus someone who would say within the context of that, my soul is at peace, it is cared for, and it is restored. N.T. Wright said of the Hebrew word that's used here for soul, it denotes the inner life, a sense of well-being and personal identity. That my inner life is restored. My my personal identity, which is so broken and marred in this sin-filled world, is restored. Oh, how often have we talked with people who did not want the paths of righteousness that the shepherd would lead them on. They did not want to follow the shepherds leading. And so instead, they followed their own path. Isn't it interesting that the highest good that our world puts forward is to follow your own path. Make your own path. Follow your own heart. Self-expression is the pinnacle of self-worship. And their sinful rebellion against their God and shepherd has echoed again and again, whether it is through media or through education, follow your heart. Follow your heart, follow your heart. And where has it led them? Has it led them, as this psalm describes, to peace and rest? Has it led them to feeling like their soul, their inner being, their identity is restored? And here's the resounding answer, not even close. Our world is filled with more brokenness than at any other time in America's history. I'm not saying there hasn't been more difficult times, but we live in a time that affirms everyone doing exactly what they want, and we've never had the mental health crisis that we have today. We've never had the suicide crisis that we have today, or the crisis of faith that seems to be everywhere. Let me give you just one example, and I want to give it lovingly and carefully. But when you look at statistics coming out of our high school's Of young people whose soul, whose sense of inner well being and personal identity, they identify their soul as part of the LGBTQ community. Statistics say those children are five times more likely to attempt suicide than their peers. Five times more likely. And what have they been told? Follow your heart. Not follow the shepherd, follow your heart. Has it led them to peace and rest? Oh, friends, no. Five times more likely to attempt suicide. How does our society then respond to these broken, don't miss the fact these are boys and girls? These are children who are casualties of our cultural experiment. How do we respond to them? Boys and girls who were made in the image and likeness of God. They respond by saying you can't disagree with their lifestyle or it is hate speech. And you certainly can't call it sin or it is violence against them. And here's why. Because they are so far from rest. They are so far from peace, so far from having a restored soul that they just might kill themselves if your words make them feel bad about themselves. Friends, that is not a description of those who have been led to a peaceful, restful place. Those are those who have been led into a war zone and left there as children, defenseless. Our society is to blame for that. This is insanity, on a national level we consider this we live in the most gay affirming time in all of human history and I use I use that word gay rather carefully Uh, there was a time where gay meant happy and so to prove how happy it makes you when you follow your own heart uh, that community has adopted that word we are the happy community that's what they are saying fast-forward 50 years what is the result that happy community is now five times more likely to try and kill themselves than everyone else. And yet, everywhere around us, we see uh, an affirming of the homosexual community. I, I want to suggest to us uh, that, that that tendency for self-loathing is not because other people have put hatred upon them. It's because their own conscience is condemning them, and we're doing nothing to help them and point them towards hope and rest at all this is tragic and one day our nation will stand in judgment because of what we are doing to our children here is the hope that we should be offering not condemnation not, not making some sign and, and going on protest that says God hates you, may God bring judgment on churches that do that and that don't offer the hope of the gospel. We live in a sin-broken world. Here's what we should be saying. We live in a sin-broken world, and there is real evil around us. In fact, it's an evil that has broken even us. Our sense of right and wrong, even who we are. Inside, you feel that tension. You feel that questioning of who am I? And when you don't know the answer to that question, or it feels like who you are is wrong, then it's easier to think of dying than going on living like this. And yet, here's what Jesus says not follow your heart, not find a place where you feel so lost that you can't imagine your life going on, and so you'd rather die. No, Jesus said in John 10, verse 11, that he is the good shepherd. When you feel lost and like dying, he lays down his life for you. Oh, it's the exact opposite of just uh, love and affirm every decision. No, our God has intervened and he has laid his life down for you. All those other voices that you hear in your head and in the world around you talking about love and acceptance, they're literally leaving you feeling like you are dead and hopeless inside and that's because Jesus said in that same passage in John 10 that all those other voices have come to steal and kill and destroy. But here's his promise to you. I came that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Come to Jesus. That should be the heart cry of the church for a broken and sin-filled world. That's Psalm 23. Verse 4, even though I walk through this valley of the shadow of death. Other translations translate that through the darkest valley. I will fear no evil. We've talked about this several weeks in a row that Psalm 23 is is shaped like a V. There's 26 words in the first half and there's 26 words in the second half and they point us all towards this phrase that's right in the middle, for thou art with me. Why is it I can have hope in the midst of darkness because God is with me? Not because I'm great and because I have all the answers. Because when I'm lost and I'm in the darkness, you are with me. The imagery shifts just a little bit uh, from being that of a shepherd to being that of the king who stands with us. He says, your rod and your staff. Now, shepherds have a staff, but they don't have a, a king's ruling rod. We, we find this language again and again. So we, we sort of have overlapping metaphors here of both a shepherd and a king who stands over. It, it's, it's the rule of our God that gives us hope in the midst of it. They comfort me. That's the heart that's at the center of this song, that we walk through dark times. Poets and philosophers have called this the dark night of the soul. And yet the promise for all who would believe And who would make the Lord their shepherd is God, you are with me. No matter how lost I feel, you are with me. In verse five, within this song that. The psalmist changes analogy. So it starts off, we are sheep in relating to God as our shepherd. And now he just can't maintain that metaphor anymore. And he switches to this person who sits before this God who is king over him, who is guiding him, who is protecting him. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me. Uh, sheep don't use tables. I don't know if you guys knew that or not, right? This is a clear shift in the metaphor that's happening here. You pre- prepare a table before me Where? Not outside of trouble, not outside of darkness, but in the very presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. We don't have time to develop all of this, but you see some repetition within the scripture of number one, anointing with oil uh, as an early medicinal thing, that it would have uh, healing properties for the body being good for the body. But we also see a line in biblical theology we chase throughout Scripture where when someone was anointed by God, they were set apart for the Lord and unto his purposes. This is not just God providing. This is God saying, you're mine. This is God looking in the midst of your darkness and grabbing onto you. Hasn't he done this, Christian, for all of us? In the midst of our darkness and wandering and even rebellion, and he snatched you out of that and said, you're mine. He anoints my head With oil, not just a little bit of salvation, but my cup overflows. And then he swells into doxology, swells into praise. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Provision, protection, goodness and mercy come from the gracious hand of our shepherd. But note The promise, verse 4, reminds us that in the dark valley of this life, God is with me. In my struggle, in my weakness. Come on, Christian, aren't you amazed at times that God chooses to be with you? When when we struggle, when we lose hope, when all of a sudden our, our loss of hope in our mind spills out with just contaminated words out of our mouth. And we just pour it out, usually on those who are closest to us, those that we love. And when we sort of regained and come to our senses, we we just think, God, I can't believe you put up with me. Oh, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. God's strength, God's protection, instead of darkness, is what is pursuing us. Eternal glory and light. And he, he ends by saying, and I will be with you forever. He starts by making uh, this incredibly profound thought right in the middle of this psalm that God, in my darkness, you are with me. But that's not where he ends. He says, in the light in which you live, I'm going to one day be with you forever. It, it's not forever stuck here in darkness, but God is with me. No, outside of that, there is infinite light in the glory of God, and I will be there with you forever. Until that day, we trust our shepherd. Until that day, we trust our king. Look with me at Psalm 46. This psalm could be broken up in its three stanzas. To the refuge of God, the city of God, and the works of God. Let's look first at the refuge of God. Psalm 46, to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to the Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, because God is a refuge, therefore, because God is strength, therefore, because God is an ever-present, He's with us in the midst of our trouble. Those, Those three things uh, are actually the same thing. That This is a resounding, this is who our God is. And look at verse 2, what it says it should do in the heart of those who believe in him. Therefore, we will not fear. I remember when 2020, that wondrous and glorious year, <laughs> was upon us, and it, you started seeing Christians putting Facebook posts and getting t-shirts that said, faith over fear. Man, that's a great idea, but it's not something that we can conjure up in ourselves. Because look at verse 2. That it, now, hold on just a second. Before we look at verse 2, let's just make this comment, because I, I think this is important. Uh, our, when, when COVID hit, our world divided. We live in a really, really uh, culturally isolated bubble here, a very conservative bubble, where most people right from the beginning in this era went, the area said, I don't think this uh, pandemic is all that it's cracked up to be. I'm not worried about it. Uh, I'm not going to freak out about it. It's going to be fine. I may be careful, but I'm not going to freak out. Now, in retrospect, you look back and go, I was right. feels good. Pat yourself on the, on the back if you can. Uh, That's not what this psalm is about. This psalm is about real calamity that overtakes us. Where faith over fear t-shirts don't get the job done. Look at this description. Therefore we will not fear, though what? Though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam. Though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Stop and think about it, Selah. Stop and meditate. Song begins with the declaration of fact of who our God is. He's a refuge, He's our strength in the midst of trouble. So, why do we so easily get shaken and discouraged? And I I would say it's because, in the midst of our trouble, we forget who our God is. We put our hope and our trust in ourselves in our wisdom, in the wisdom of those who surround us, in the security of those who surround us, in family, in job, in another person, in a church, even in our nation. And therefore, when those things and those people are not either able or willing to save us, we lose hope. But the psalmist here says, because I know who my God is, therefore We will not fear. But he doesn't say we won't fear because it's not all it's cracked up to be. No, in fact, this is the exact opposite of that. He says we won't fear even though the very earth, the very world in which we live, falls apart. That we studied this morning in the adult Sunday school class, the life of Job when one after another after another after another comes and says you've lost it you've lost it until you get to the place where they say you've lost all that you have you've lost all who you love at that point we cannot look that person in the eye and say it's really not as bad as you're making it out to be faith over fear and yet knowing who our god is enables us to say we will not fear we will not be shaken even though the worst thing that you can imagine happens. Even if the strongest thing that you can imagine, a mountain, is moved. And the word moved, I want to just plant this with you because we're going to touch on it a little bit. Uh, It's the Hebrew word that means to totter or to shake or to fall over. But I, I want us to just use the word totter there, as if something is just sort of like like tottering on the edge of disaster, tottering on the edge of falling over into the depths of the sea. And the sea throughout scripture often resembles uh, chaos. It it gives this representation of an evil. In fact, in a lot of ancient religions, uh, the sea was a god of itself, and it was an unpredictable and dangerous god whose main desire was to swallow people up. Even if the evil and chaos of the sea and it, the word for roar there is actually the word for growl. As if it, it is just, just poised, wanting to destroy, uh, wanting to just tear into you and foam to overflow and everything around you in response to that, even the strongest things of these mountains is trembling in fear. The psalmist says we trust our God. In light of real suffering, in light light of real pain and heartache that we go through, we should ask the question, how is that possible? Even knowing that our God is who it is, it is who he is, when we look at the world as it is, how is it possible that we trust in the midst of everything being shaken? And here's the answer in verse 4, because there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. This Illustration of the city of God is this second stanza that we find here. And it's described as a holy habitation of the Most High. God lives there. God is in the midst of this city. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Oh, Just consider the truth that our God dwells with his people so much of ancient religions. We find it uh, again and again throughout Scripture as they believed in these, these foreign gods, these, these local deities, only if they wanted to reach out and contact this god, it, we find it as uh, the prophet stands on top of Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal are there against him and he begins to taunt them. Maybe you should shout louder. Maybe your god is on a trip and he's far away from you. My favorite taunt is, uh, he says, perhaps he covereth his feet, uh, which is an old colloquialism for maybe your God's in the bathroom, and that's why he can't respond right now. No, our God is not distanced from us. Our God dwells in the midst of us. In fact, in the New Testament, as believers in Christ, the spirit of our God indwells us. Not just near us, not not just in this building when the church gathers. He is in the building of your heart and soul, and together we are being built into a holy habitation for the Most High as the church of Jesus Christ. Here we have the Old Testament imagery, that finds its fulfillment in Revelation 21. I don't know if it sounded familiar to you. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, a holy habitation for the Most High. It is going to be echoed and fulfilled in Revelation 21 and 22 that says God is in the midst of this city, this holy habitation, this new Jerusalem. And the city equals His people. That's what the analogy is. We are that city. And so it says we as the church will not be moved. Now, friends, let, let me break the bad news to you. You're going to die. I'm going to die. There will come a day when none of us who are currently in this room are still living. There may come a day when not a single block of this building still remains stacked on one another. And still on that day, the, G, the church of Jesus Christ will be in full force, growing in the glory of God upon the earth. Oh, that is good news, because when a little bit of bad news comes to us as individual blocks, right, Pink Floyd maybe had it right, you're just another brick in the wall. (laughs) I know, I know, you can't believe that just happened. But when one of those bricks gets shaken, come on, don't we instantly think, I think the whole thing's fallen down. Hey, I think the the whole thing's going to collapse around. How quick when trouble comes to one brick in there and we go, you know what? Maybe God's not good. Maybe the church doesn't care about me. Maybe my family doesn't care about me. Insert maybe whatever after that. How quick are we to forget that it's Jesus Christ who said, I will build my church. It's Jesus Christ who stands guard over his church. Oh, we need to be reminded of that. When we feel moved we need to be reminded that the promise is that God is in the midst of his city and it will not be moved by the way that word moved is the exact same word that he says even if the mountains should totter even if the church should totter even if the people of God appear like they are tottering on the point of falling over he says it will not happen they will not be moved. They are solid and rooted and anchored in Jesus Christ. Uh, that word is not just a totter. It actually has this idea of being shaken violently. Verse 2 says, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains totter into the heart of the sea. Verse 5, God is in the midst of her. She shall not totter. But look what happens When the evil nations, the the nations that have rejected God, the forces that feel like they're the ones who are going to knock the church over, look what happens when they rage. Psalm 2 actually says their rage is against the Lord and against his anointed. Verse 6. The nations rage and the kingdoms, you want to guess what that word is? Totter. Oh, it feels like our world is violently shaken and going to fall over. It feels like the church is violently shaken, losing ground in the culture and going to fall over. And here's the promise of God. All those nations that Psalm 2 says, they're not raging against us. They're raging against God and against Jesus Christ. And he says, they will totter. When is that going to happen? When he utters his voice and the earth melts. This is not some cosmic conflict where Jesus is fighting or, as the picture on Facebook has, arm-wrestling Satan, and we're not sure who's going to win. No, one word shall fell him. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Meditate on that. When you feel like your world is falling apart, meditate on the triumph of our God. Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, wrote his most famous hymn based on Psalm 46. A mighty fortress is our God. And yet Luther struggled with anxiety and depression that would so cripple him at times that he could not get out of bed. He would frequently say to his friend Philip Melanchthon when he was feeling as if the entire Protestant Reformation was about to fall apart. That one brick of Luther just being shaken. And if he is shaken, the whole thing falls apart. Friends, this is not just, uh, oh, I'm imagining things are worse than they are. Uh, Their friends were being martyred for this Protestant faith. And when he felt like the whole thing would fall apart, he would say, come, Philip. Let us sing the 46th Psalm until a victorious spirit is renewed within us. Oh, consider what it looked like to be standing as we find these five tenets of the Protestant Reformation on our back wall. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. And it feels like those might fall. And hypocrisy and heresy might reign in the church. And he would say, come, let us sing the 46th Psalm And say, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. Hear 46 in this. We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, Satan himself, is grim, but we tremble not for him. Why is it, church? Because one little word shall fell him. He will totter. John Calvin said of this 46th Psalm, it should be attributed to the siege of Jerusalem that happened in King Hezekiah's time. We find it in 2 Chronicles 32, 2 Kings 19, where God's people are surrounded. The Assyrians have descended upon them. King Sennacherib is there, uh, going to cut them off, going to starve them out. And the prophets begin to prophesy, those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. And the battle belongs to the Lord. And so they pray, and they sing, and when they wake up in the morning, locked inside this city, without hope, unable to defend themselves, here's what 2 Kings 19.35 says, And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians, and when the people of God, that's who the people are, when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. It seems repetition to to say uh, the fields were full of corpses, and by the way, they were all dead bodies. It's because the night before, they were not dead bodies at all. They were a a descending horde who had come to destroy them. But the power of God, one little word had felled them. I'm going to guess you and I can't even wrap our brains around what it looks like to have 185,000 dead bodies around your city. Oh, and the the prophecy had come. They're going to be annihilated. Sennacherib is going to go home and he's going to be killed at home, which is exactly what happened. He was betrayed and murdered upon his arrival back home. That is what the psalmist had in mind when he says in verse 8, come behold the works of the Lord. Church, that's way different than reading some happy poem, and then because we're really, really churchy on a Sunday morning, we go, come behold the works of the Lord. Imagine that everyone in Elkhart descended upon this church at Eden Worship Center to besiege and destroy us, and we're locked in here at night together, and we pray, oh God, would you deliver? And in the morning, God killed everyone from Elkhart, and their bodies are about a mile in every direction, 185,000 people, and the first person who walks out the door comes right back in and says, Come behold the works of the Lord. That's different than let's come to church and sing a Jesus song. Are you tracking with me? This is a different kind of God than we normally talk about. Look what it says. Psalm 46, verse 8. Come behold the works of the Lord. He has brought desolation on the earth. God did this. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. Now, I grew up a good little Mennonite boy, and so my tendency is to read that as a good little Mennonite, like, Goshencology type boy who goes, I have a coexist bumper sticker on the back of my car, and the ultimate good is that everybody's happy, and can't we all be friends and get along? That's not how God makes wars to cease. He does it by annihilating his enemies. Wow, that's different. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. You know why? Because dead bodies don't need their weapons anymore. He burns their chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of heaven is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Meditate on that. Oh, how different is that from Jesus meek and mild as we have heard him in the past. In fact, if you go on to read those passages in Chronicles and Kings, the people of God rejoice that their enemies have been destroyed and they come back singing, Come behold the works of the Lord. This psalm ends with a repetition. Verse 7 and verse 11 have the exact same phrase is in there. The Lord of hosts. And when it says the Lord of hosts, the, the Lord of the armies of heaven is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. So that's who our God is. But we should ask the question, yes, but why is that God with us? Why is that God for us? Here's the popular answer, and that's that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. When we hear that, most often, it puts you at the direct center of all of God's plans for your life and this world. At least the world that you're in. As soon as I'm dead, he can move on to some other exceptionally awesome person. But right now, it all has to come revolving around me. Can I just say to us, in light of what we confess together in the call to worship, that's idolatry. That is idolatry with me as the idol. Do you know what God does to idols who oppose him? He knocks them down and wipes them out. God forbid that I put myself in that place. It is idolatrous to say that your comfort and happiness are God's highest priorities. God's ultimate priority is his own glory. Psalm 72, verse 18 and 19 Blessed be the Lord. The God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be the glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angel armies, that people labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing, that you work your whole life to build a life and a home and a happiness that will just be consumed in fire, that nations weary themselves, people groups weary themselves for nothing, and within a couple generations, that which they had is gone. It is ruined. He says, that's not the point of your life, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Friends, you may build a big house today, And yet if you die and no one is there to take care of it within a generation, it will be gone and it will be ruins. And the glory of the Lord will remain. So what is your life about? What is all your hard work for? Here's the answer that scripture gives us. It's to make the glory of God known upon the earth. That is his wonderful plan for your life. Does God love you? Yes, absolutely. In Christ, he has chosen to love you. And What is the plan for your life? That you may make his glory known upon the earth. We see that in Isaiah 48, 9 and 10. The prophet says, On behalf of God to his people, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you, that I may not cut you off. For behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. Not as as you think about refining things. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Oh, that God would lead us into those places, as Psalm 23 said, that would be hard and dark and difficult that he might refine us. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. What is the point of what you're going through in your life that God's glory might be put on display in you? Inside your bulletin, there's a sermon note handout that's in in there. And on the back side, I have a couple exercises I would like you to do. Rather than uh, having some family worship in there or some note-taking section, I, I want you to actually do some stuff that will be helpful for your heart and mind And soul. And one of them is, I want you to write down 10 ways God has demonstrated his glory in your life. Because you're going to have dark times where it feels like you are shaken, where you are tottering, and then you might be tempted to say, you know what, I don't think God is for me. Let me give you some examples. The glory of his faithfulness by not giving up on me. He's demonstrated the glory of His wisdom by leading me when I didn't know what to do. He's demonstrated the glory of His kindness in calling me to repentance. The glory of His forgiveness when I sinned. The glory of His patience when I strayed. The glory of His provision. The glory of His healing. The glory of His comfort when my world was shaken and my heart was broken. When the things that you have trusted in, in this world, are shaken, Trust again in God's faithful commitment to his own glory. And hide yourself in the shelter of the Most High. Let's turn together to Psalm 91. For the sake of time, I'm just going to read all the way through Psalm 91. But I want you to listen to the resolute commitment of trust in the Lord as we read this psalm together. And for all who do, for all who fear, oh, the promise that there is no judgment and that they are guarded and delivered. Psalm 91, verse 1, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, and from the deadly pestilence he will cover you with his pinions. And under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone you'll tread on the lion and on the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him. I will honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Most of us are familiar with the tragic story of the sinking of the Titanic that happened in 1912. Uh, Captain Edward Smith became legendary as the captain of that ship for going down with his ship on the Titanic. But he was captain of other ships leading up to that. And six years previous, while captaining the RMS Baltic, he had sent a letter home to his little daughter while serving on that ship. They actually have that letter at the Titanic Museum in Pigeon Forge. Uh, Daniel and I went with Keith and Tiffany just recently. And I saw the letter, and there's something on there that caught my eye. He wrote, I hope Mother and you and Gladys are well. I shall soon be home. DV, your loving daddy. Here's here's what struck me back in May of 2020 when all of COVID was breaking out and we didn't know if several people that we knew were going to die of this. We talked about what it means to be in the Lord's hands and to say, Lord willing, we shall do this or that. And how in times gone by, Christians would include things in their correspondence. And rather than saying, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that, they would say, Deo valente, Lord willing. I know it was in May of 2020. Because rather famously, it was in the first week of May, uh, where we were also celebrating uh, Cinco de Mayo as a nation. And that was being bounced around. And then one of the lovely Mormon children mentioned something at home. And they said they were going to do something. And they said, well, you know, Cinco de Mayo. (laughs) And John and Kara said, what's this now? Well, you know, Lord willing, Lord willing, we'll do Cinco de Mayo. No, 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 you've confused two things. (laughs) One is the 5th of May, and one is Deo Valente. <laughs> Even in newspapers, they would say, we're going to host this event. And then in parentheses, they would have the abbreviation DV. And when I saw that on the letter, I got excited like a little child. I don't know if you're supposed to get excited in the Titanic Museum, kind of a sober place, uh, a, a somber <laughs> uh, thing to go through. And I'm like, I'm taking a picture of this. Uh, Consider the captain of a ship from this, this large ship that he is steering. And he says, I'm, I'm hoping to my little girl, I'm going to come and see you. And yet he has enough of a faith within him to say, that is if the Lord wills. There was something of faith behind this man. And fast forward six years, wanting to see the same wife, wanting to see the same daughter on that night in 1912 it was the same desire lord willing but what happened what happened to psalm 91 verse 7 a thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand but it will not come near you well it wasn't ten thousand but captain smith was one of one thousand five hundred and thirty four who drowned in the icy water that night did god not keep his promise Was God not faithful? Psalm 91 verse 10 says, No evil shall befall you, and no plague come near your tent. There's two words in there that I think are helpful in uh, deciphering and decoding what's going on here. Number one, it's evil. It is curse that is coming upon you, and plague. And when when you look at plague throughout Scripture... Again and again, it is sent as God's judgment on evil. It is God's judgment on those who would do wicked. This doesn't mean that nothing bad is going to ever happen to Christians. I remember 20 years ago, there was, uh, as often happens, a a bout of flu going around. And uh, one of the elders of our church, as I was starting to come down with something, uh, he got right in my face and he said, (laughs) no evil shall befall you and no plague come near your tent. I said, amen, I agree, but I don't think I have the plague, I think I have the flu. (laughs) This doesn't mean that Christians won't ever get sick. It doesn't mean that Christians won't experience bad things. Uh, You guys are good proof of that. We've had all kinds of hard and difficult things that we walk through. Why? Because we live in a sin-broken world. Verse 8 actually gives us the clue to understanding this, to getting on the right track. Here's the problem. It goes back to God slaying his enemies. We have so sanitized God. We have sissified God as to make him only nice and only kind. He's basically nothing more than a glorified Santa Claus. We have no sense of a God who would defend his people by slaying 185,000 but the deadly pestilence it just uh, take time later on read psalm 91 deadly pestilence terror of the night darkness destruction calamity and plague look what verse 8 says you will only look and see with your eyes you will see what the recompense the payment of who the wicked This is God's judgment upon those who have rejected and rebelled against him. And he says, when it comes to the wrath and the judgment of God, Romans chapter 1 says that the wicked who know the truth of God suppress the truth and they are storing up wrath for themselves. He says, of that wrath you will have no part of it. You will never stand under the wrathful condemnation of God as a believer. No, instead, verse 11, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. By the way, that's the same verse that Satan would use to tempt Jesus in Matthew 4, verse 5 through 7. Jesus, who was the one true, as verse 14 says here, because he holds fast to me in love, I'll deliver him. Jesus, the promise right from the beginning of Genesis that we find in verse 13 that says you will tread upon the serpent. You will trample him underfoot. Isn't that the promise that God gave to Adam and Eve right at the beginning? But the seed of woman will crush his head. And yet it seems like some not so nice things happen to Jesus, doesn't it? Look what Jesus said to his followers. Turn with me to Luke chapter 21. We're almost done. This is super important. In fact, we're going to spend a little extra time on this because I believe this is important for your souls and the care of your souls. Luke 21, beginning in verse 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples of what they should expect. Within the context that Psalm 91 still applies to them, uh, it will not come near to you. Here's what he says: Luke 16, uh, Luke 21, verse 16. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But look at verse 18. But not a hair of your head will perish. How do those two things sit together at the same time? Well, it only happens if this is not about your safety and comfort. Jesus isn't promising you a life free of suffering. He isn't promising you your best life now. So what is it all about? Uh, go back up in Luke 21 to verse 12 and 13. Right? He you said you'll be you'll be delivered over, you'll be taken. You'll be arrested, you'll be betrayed. You'll be dragged before the courts, but verse 12, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and to prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to, come on, read it in your scripture, bear witness to testify to the glory of God on the earth. Well, if you're familiar at all with the word witness, you'll know that in the Greek, he says, this is your opportunity to martyr. To bear witness. That It got used so much in the early church. We are bearing witness to the glory of Jesus Christ, to the place where it costs us our life, that it became associated with those who would die for that which they believe this is an opportunity to declare the glory of God this moment when you're in the midst of struggling and darkness is an opportunity for God's glory to be put on display in me on that handout that you have uh, I hope that you keep that forever you'll find that phrase this moment is an opportunity for God's glory to be put on display in me. When you find yourself in that dark night of the soul, pull this paper out of your Bible. Be reminded that Jesus is the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. Be reminded that Jesus was punished on the cross for the sins of his sheep. Isaiah 53 4 through 6 as surely he has borne our griefs carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by god and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement the beating that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed all we back to psalm 23 like sheep have gone astray we've turned each one to his own way But rather than dealing severely with us, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Oh, Jesus knows and cares for his people. Jesus defends and watches over his people. That means you can trust him. In fact, it's more than just a good idea. It is the command of Scripture, put your trust in him. Yet here's what we find in Psalm 91 many christians even christians in this room this morning miss out on the blessing of living under the shelter of the almighty because they choose to live outside of it if that's if that's you this morning maybe you think i do need god for salvation i do need god at least periodically on a sunday morning but the rest of my life i've got it i'm smart i'm capable I will keep all the pieces of my life together. Jesus, thank you very much for saving my soul. I think we're done here. Back to the illustration at the beginning. Therefore, you don't find rest for your soul. You don't find peace for your soul. You live frustrated, angry, and depressed. Oh, if that's you, hear the call today. Come and rest yourself in Him. To say with Psalm 91, verse 1 and 2, I will be the one who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. Not just shows up on a Sunday morning and kind of nods along with it. I will live under the shelter of the Most High God. I will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, God, you're my refuge. You're the place I run. You're my fortress. You're my God in whom I trust. That sermon handout, that card that you have there, has some verses. It says, this is an opportunity for God's glory to be put on displayed within me. And then it has that verse broken out. That one of the things that as a chaplain that we encourage first responders to do who get in situations where they feel overwhelmed. In fact, the military uh, uses this in training of their people is to do what they call combat breathing. And it's just four count of a deep breath in and then holding it, two, three, four. And then four count of that deep breath out and then holding it, two, three, four. Remember when you were a little kid and something happened and you came running in the house and you were all out of breath and you couldn't say what was going on and what did your mom say to you? Take Take a deep breath. All right, one more time. Tell me what's going on. She knew that there was something in just taking deep breath that just calms our hearts down. How much better when our souls feel overwhelmed and we pull this out and we say something like, I will be the one who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. I will be the one who abides in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, you're my refuge. You're my fortress. You're the God in whom I trust. And then you don't feel any better, so you do it again. And then you don't feel any better, so you do it again. You're doing what your mommy told you to do and what scripture told you to do. At the end of all those stanzas in those psalms, it said, Selah. I'm going to meditate on this. I'm going to sit for a moment. I'm going to breathe in the truth of who my God is. I'm going to breathe out the hope and the trust that anchors my life, my soul, my identity in him so that I can say with the Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can trust you. We thank you, O God, that you stand guard over your people, that you protect, that you provide That even though you may lead us to walk through the darkest valleys that we can imagine in the midst of that, your promise is you are with us. But it's not just a promise, Lord, that you'll be with us in the darkness. It's a promise that when all that darkness is over, we'll be with you in the light. And until that day comes, we say, oh God, I will put my hope and my trust in you. And in the moments when I forget, oh God, would you use something like this simple tool in front of us to remind us, to say, even to our own souls, I must dwell in the shelter of the Most High. I must abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will run to Him. I will hide myself in Him. Lord, I pray for weary Christians who are here this morning, who feel like they don't even have the strength to do that. Oh God, When they do not, would you be the one who spreads your great wings out and gathers them to yourself? Would you hide them under the shelter of your great power? Would you feel them again with strength that doesn't come from them? It doesn't belong to them. It is the strength of your Holy Spirit that indwells them. Lord, and for those who are here this morning who do not know you, who do not trust you, I pray, O God, that you would pursue them and overtake them until they can see nothing else than your great and glorious power to save. Oh God, we are your people. We live in an uncertain world, but we say our hope and our trust is in you. Amen and amen.
0: Thanks for joining our podcast. We pray that God would bless you and strengthen you through his word. If you'd like to find out more about EWC, or give tithes and offerings in support of this ministry, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co.